Hey guys, before we go into this week's episode, I just want to shout out a free app that's coming to the scene, 360 Medics. Think Google for Medics. You get access to a drugs database, medical tools, news, revision aids, and a place to store your own notes, and they promise to always be free. They've got a giveaway running at the moment for an £80 Amazon gift card. Sign up now with the code scrubbed in to be in with a chance of winning. Let's now get back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In Podcast. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have another amazing doctor and founder joining us. Today we have Dr. Abdullah Al-Bayati, who is the co-founder of Medical Chain and My Clinic and is also a fully qualified GP. He's an Imperial College graduate and has always been innovative and passionate about problem solving and solving the inefficiencies he noticed while working as a doctor in the NHS. It's a massive, massive pleasure to introduce you to the show, Abdullah. Welcome to you? the show. Hey, so thanks. Thanks very much for having me, guys. It's an honor that you guys have invited me. And if there's anything I can share or help others with, then, then you know, I feel very duty bound to do that. And thanks for giving me the platform to do that. No worries. There are so many things we want to touch on today and discuss. But as is the traditional, the scrubbing style, we want to take it all the way back to the very beginning of your career. Um, so if you don't mind sharing with us, at what point did you want to become a doctor and thought, do you know what, let me study medicine. And from there, you can kind of bring us up to speed with what you're doing today. So for me, I didn't want to become a doctor when I was younger. Um, I actually wanted to become a pilot. And w- when I was at uh, secondary school, I went to a, a, a very good secondary school where we had um, the cadet force and the Royal Air Force training there as well. And I joined that because I really thought this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a pilot. I'm going to fly planes. And it's really my passion. And then obviously, you know, being Iraqi descendant, Asian, my mom and dad had a word with me and said, you know, that's, those are fantasies for other people. For, for you, you're going to be a doctor. And I, th- I thank them for that. So my, uh, my older sister, Amna, is a doctor. I'm a doctor. My middle sister, Yasmin, is a uh, dentist. And the youngest one, Yusra, is a doctor. So that's our four siblings. Um, and, and to be honest with you, it was very sound advice from my parents. They said, you know, these qualifications, and, and again, maybe we'll touch on this later, but it's very important to have these qualifications. They're a great way to open doors to many things. And then you can go be a pilot afterwards if you want to. Mm. But just try to get this foundation, first of all, in your life. So from about 15, 16, I was like, okay, I'm going to start taking this seriously. I'd never really looked into it properly. So I remember I was doing uh, English GCSEs. My coursework folder was hovering somewhere around a D or an E grade. And I remember telling, uh, I still remember her name, Miss Cronin was my English teacher. Mm. And she said, you know, your English is disgraceful. And I told her, well, it doesn't matter <laughs> because, you know, I'm going to be a doctor. So why do I need English? You know, this is, this is not for me. And then she, she was very kind and generous enough to highlight to me that, you know, if you don't get at least a B in English in GCSE, you're not going to make it into medical school. So that's where I really, that's what was the first time I remember thinking, right, this is my target and I have to give this everything that I can to get into medical school. Mm. I applied for four medical schools. I got rejected from all four medical schools without interview and I was forced to go on a gap year. Mm. Uh, In my gap year, which was completely unplanned, I worked at my school as the uh, biology technician. So the guy who's cutting up the chips so you can do the osmosis tests. That was me. Um, and I worked at uh, a, a few other jobs during my gap year, but I applied for medicine again. And thankfully, the problem was never the grades. You know, the highest grade you could get in my time for A-levels was A, and I had three A's. I just never had an interview and opportunity to show that I wanted to do medicine. 
So I got re-interviewed. Thankfully, I got interviewed at Imperial. And uh, they just said, oh, you've already got three A's. So this is an unconditional offer. Whenever you want to come, you Amazing. can come. And oh. thankfully, that was the beginning of my of my journey into, into medicine. Amazing. Having got into Imperial College London, world-renowned, super famous, uh, just briefly tell us how med school was like for you, what it's like to be a medical student at Imperial um, before we go into your foundation training. I mean, I was out of my depth, frankly speaking. You know, I think what didn't help me is because I'd been on a gap year as well, I had forgotten how to revise, how to be organized. Um, mm. I failed my exams in the first year. Uh, I was so excited about living out and finally doing the whole uni experience. And I've got my friends and we're playing football and, you know, we're going out for a meal at two o'clock in the morning on Edgware <laughs> Road uh, yeah. that I immediately got pulled back by my mum and dragged back home after mm. my exams because she said, you know, you, you, there's obviously too much for you. <laughs> Thankfully, after that, I, I passed my research and the rest is history, as you say it. But um, no, Imperial, I, I have to say, you know, without trying to sound biased, I, I really think it is a cut on, above the rest. Um, mm. there's, probably, there's probably a few universities. I think you guys are, are Bart's boys. Am I right in no, saying that? Kings, Kings. Kings. Oh, well, you you guys, that, that's a sin, man. That, that is a big sin you just, you just <laughs> you, committed. You guys, you guys should take that as a compliment. What are you talking about? You're not even <laughs> wow. in, the, in the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, my, so my, my two sisters, Amna, the older sister, and Yusra, the younger sister, both went yeah. to Kings. Oh, oh amazing. Gone. Okay, yeah. okay. Now that's so, amazing. Yeah. There's a long, long-standing rivalry we have in our family. Um, <laughs> and we're... we're <laughs> Yeah. Whenever we argued around the dinner table, I'd just point at my chest and say Imperial, and then that would be the end of it. Um, <laughs> but no, it's a, it was a very hard university. Um, it was very hard, made harder by the students. Um, there's a culture, you know, there. I'm sure it's changed or it's improved, but people don't share notes. They don't share mm. past papers. Mm. In, in a way, it's a, it's, a, it's a blessing and a curse. It's a curse because you think, look, why are we not helping each other? Especially when I'm... And I hope, you know, I demonstrate on this podcast as well. I'm always the kind of guy that wants to share and give because mm. I've only got to where I am because people have shared with me. Um, but it's also a blessing because this is the nature of the beast. Uh, you know, these are medical people. They're very competitive people. They've been competing from a very young age up mm. until now and they continue to compete. And mm. especially Imperial was a university which really focused on being surgeons. You know, mm. the, the word GP was really a dirty word at Imperial. Wow. Um, you know, you, you're, a, you're a surgeon or there's this other career that we call a failed surgeon. You know, you can mm. call it GP yeah. if you want, but we, yeah. we call it failed surgeon. Wow. Um, so it was, it was a tough gig. And thankfully, I, I came out, I passed exams. I started excelling towards the end of medical school where it became about OSCEs and speaking and mm. feelings and not just uh you know the, the pure science and, and what them. kings is amazing at basically right yeah yeah of course you know you, <laughs> you guys you know communication skills 10 out of 10 you know knowledge <laughs> one out of 10 but no no I'm, I'm being really hard for people listening around the world obviously kings is a fantastic university <laughs> and, and has huge reputation reputation as well yeah. um <laughs> but no i mean thankfully i mean this happened to me recently i i, I won an award from imperial um mm, and I was really, out of all the awards I've won or things I've been involved in, it was my proudest moment because up until that point, I really felt I'm out of my depth. I don't deserve to be here. I'm yeah. faking it, imposter mm. syndrome. And when I won this award from Imperial, which was the uh, Emerging Alumni Leadership Award uh, oh, wow. this year, I thought, okay, now I genuinely feel like it validated my time there. I did deserve 
to be, yeah. be amongst these people. I did make my university proud and my university is proud to be associated with me as well. No, that's amazing. I'd like to pick up on something that you said uh, just earlier on about the the culture in medical school, which makes things harder than it should be. It's actually not changed um, in the sense that I still hear from medical students and we've only graduated. Well, it's only been less than three years since we graduated um, in the in the sense of not sharing notes, not supporting each other. Why do you think that is? Um, apart from it obviously being due to the type A personalities of most medical students, why does why do we foster that culture and why does it continue? I think because I think you know generally speaking because we don't know better. You know, you look at you look at your predecessors, and your predecessors will tell you how they you know went through brick walls to achieve what mm. they achieved, and it gives mm. you this kind of hardened mentality of yeah, I've got to be very cold, and I've got to be very you know, lacking any emotion and I've just got to focus on me and it's all about mm. me and if I give anybody else and it's stupid because you know the whole purpose of medicine is a collaboration like everything yeah. we do is a collaboration it's a yeah. collaboration in multidisciplinary team meetings MDTs it's a collaboration with patients it's a collaboration with their carers and I think you'll find you know the the, the nature of medicine is you're meant to be a caring empathetic person and when you're breeding and fostering this kind of cold um, personality to make it in this field, it's very counterproductive. And I think that's why you'll find some doctors go on to do very well, because it's part of their nature to be caring, whereas others struggle later on. And, you know, people will criticize them and say, look, why, why are they so awkward? And they just mm -hmm. make barriers for themselves. You know, there's many things we do at medical school, unfortunately, where it's very short sighted. And I say this is one of them. You know, the other mm -hmm. things are like leadership. Nobody ever talks about being an entrepreneur. Never, no one ever really. I mean, we talk about being a leader, but we don't actually mean it. Nor do we invest any time <laughs> in it. But mm. these are these, are of course, your future leaders. You know, you're going to be mm. a consultant, and you're going to be leading a hospital department. You're going to be a GP partner, and you're going to be leading the practice for that community of ten, twenty thousand patients. You know, how are you not encouraging these individuals to learn how to be leaders, work with each other, support each other? You know, if you're mm doing well pull the next guy up with you you know help mm. them show them you know so it's i'm yeah. sorry to hear that it's it, you guys had a similar experience mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. but it's very it's very short-sighted unfortunately and it's one of the things which is holding us back no definitely agree and i do that. hope the coach changes so you go through imperial you graduate um tell us where you did your foundation training and this transition because i know you got onto surgical training and then opted to pursue gp Kind of share that um, phase of your life or journey with us. Yeah, so this is uh, you know something which I refer to as fate. Uh, in, in Arabic, we call it qisma. You know, it's just mm. it's not been decided by you. But yeah. um, I happen to be allocated in Preston, uh, Royal Preston mm. Hospital, and my absolute best friend uh, Kazra Razi, um, who was my best man at my wedding as well, he got dumped in Liverpool, not out of choice either. And both of us wanted to be surgeons, and it just happened to be that there's a small town called Wigan, which is exactly mm. equidistant between Preston and Liverpool. <laughs> so somehow me and my absolute best friend managed to live together in Wigan and I commuted to Preston to practice. He commuted to Liverpool to do F1, F2. Mm. And we were both very keen on doing surgery and we passed our MRC, uh, MRSA, MRSA, MRCS, MRCS, it's been that long, <laughs> our MRCS, membership of the Royal College of Surgeons exam, uh, together early on as foundation trainees. Um, you know, for your listeners that want to want to be surgeons, it was a very good move because we weren't in a busy, big, large city hospital such as in London, Manchester, possibly Birmingham. 
because I was in Preston, I had no competition. You know, mm. everybody there was trying to be a GP. They were all Manchester graduates. Mm. And there was one or two that were serious about surgery. But if I walked into any theater and said, I'm the F1, do you mind if I scrub in? You know, the surgeons couldn't believe it. Like, oh my God, somebody <laughs> actually wants to be a surgeon, which yeah. is very different, obviously, from the kind of large city hospitals. No, yeah, um, absolutely. Where you're seventh so, in line to hold the camera. I, I, was, I was doing tonsillectomies independently as an F1. Oh, wow. oh amazing. You know, and there were, there were occasions, like I remember, I mean, the, these small things which you you cherish and make you proud. I remember I was coming towards the end of my placement. There was a psychiatric patient who was under plastics because unfortunately what she would do is she'd cut open her arm and she'd put pieces of plastic and Lego in between her skin. And Mm. she was there nearly every week and they'd have to put her under general anesthetic to fish out all these foreign bodies. And she so happened to this time put foreign bodies deep in her ear as well. And I remember the um, registrar was with me at the time, plastic surgeons called and said, we're putting this patient to sleep. Please could you come as the registrar and help remove these foreign bodies? And the registrar said, look, I'm sorry, we've got a, a very big case right now with, with a child who's got stridor and, and I have to deal with this, but I'm sending my F1. And I remember the plastic surgeon just being like, what? You know, and, they, <laughs> and the, the registrar had full confidence in me and said, no, they're very good. They know exactly what they're doing and they know what equipment they need and they will come and, come and do the surgery. So when, while they were working on the patient's arm, I was working on her ears. And I remember it was a moment of feeling accepted by my colleagues. Here was I as, a, as an F1. And this other chap was a was a consultant, but my name went on the the the, um, the uh, board. My name went on the operating sheet. You know, oh, wow. it was Abdullah Al Biati was operating. These are my notes. You know, this is my follow up. Use the Sofridex drops. You know, call us back if you mm. need anything. So it was a very, you know, those are the early days I think, and the romance of being a surgeon. I was like, oh, this is amazing. I, I can do this for life. Yeah. yeah, and then this follows very nicely into my next question having tasted surgery, having been the lead surgeon and kind of seen a glimpse in what your life could be like, why did this sudden transition into GP training occur? What happened yeah. between surgical training to GP? I, I moved to London. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. Did, did, did we traumatize you that bad? You thought you couldn't do surgery anymore. Um, <laughs> you really <laughs> Yeah, but yeah walk, uh, walk us through, walk us through. Yeah, so essentially, I um, my family are from London. Uh, we were living in, in South East London in Crystal Palace. Mm. And I'd spent some years out in the north. I happened to get married at the time as well. Um, so my wife is from Bradford. And I said, okay, look, I'm going to go down to London. I'm going to apply for surgical training in London. It's super competitive, um, but I'll try my best. And again, you know, credit to Royal Preston Hospital and the consultants and the team I had supporting me there. They made my CV spick and span. You know, I got sent out on presentations, oral presentations, mm. post presentations. I was given time off for exams. You know, I really was looked after. I had a, I had a very uh, attractive logbook. I had funding for teach the teachers courses, all the kind of oh, things wow. you need to impress people in a in a in an interview. And I remember Amazing. my friends. So we go back to the kind of elite imperial people. They all mm. managed to do their F one training, F two training in London. Mm. I want to say, and I think I'm accurate in saying this, none of them got surgical training in London. They all got dumped around the country because mm-hmm. they'd started F1 and F2 in London, whereas I had gone out first and then come back. So, so I, mm-hmm. I, I, again, you know, that whole kind of validation, I felt like, no, actually, I'm, you know, I am worth this. I know I got dumped in Preston, but that was a blessing mm-hmm. in disguise. And now I'm back. 
So I came to uh, London Surgical Training. Um, I wanted to be an ENT surgeon, so it's hard to explain it to people that are not involved in in surgical training, let alone medical training, but Mm. it's a competition within a competition. So to get into London Surgical Training in my time, you had to be one of the top 100 candidates because there's that many surgical trainees. Then out of that 100, there are only 12 rotations within that 100 that have some kind of ENT theme. Yeah. And then when you finish the first year of surgical training, only in London, do they re-interview you for the second year of surgical training. Whereas every other area in the country, this is your next 24-month pathway and you're going to start off as an orthopedic surgeon or plastics, whatever. So I had to constantly be at the top of my game to get into the first year of surgery, to do ENT, to then compete to get into ENT again the second year because if you don't have an ENT theme, you can't apply as a registrar and progress your career. So this is where I first did my surgical training. Um, Tough, long, hard, and, you know, I have the ultimate respect for the people that have stayed in Mm. surgery and see it to the end. So my best friend I was telling you about earlier in in this uh, conversation was Kazal Razi. He's still a surgical trainee. You know, he's in Kent, Surrey, Sussex. I think he's ST6 now. Oh, Um, isn't he amazing? Yeah, he's a very accomplished surgeon. Like if I ever had a a surgical problem or whatever, I'd be very happy for him to do it for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's still on that journey. Uh, And the reason he's still on that journey is because he absolutely loves it. It's his life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what I realized when I moved to London and moved into surgery is this is not my life. Like very simply, I remember I I had the wrong attitude for a surgeon, if you want to put it that way. Um, Mm -hmm. We were doing a thyroidectomy. So this is the removal of the thyroid glands from the neck of a patient. And, you know, I should be excited. I'm seeing this case. I'm scrubbed in. I'm learning. And I remember the consultant nicked one of the arteries and it started bleeding as an artery would if you nicked it. And the consultant was like, okay, we're going to have to repair this before we move on. And I remember the first emotion that entered me was, oh, for God's sakes, like how, how much longer is this going to be? Oh, wow. <laughs> and that is the complete wrong attitude for a surgeon. You know, yeah. like I should have been excited. They're going to show me how to get out of this. You know, a lot of people don't realize the art of surgery is not doing the procedure. The art of surgery is how do you get out of a problem? Yeah, you know, yeah. you could take any person off the street and show them how to do an incision and drainage. They can do an incision and drainage. I numb it with a needle. I put a knife in it. I squeeze, done. The surgeon is when it goes wrong. I've seen a nerve. I, I cut an artery. How am I going to get out of that? Mm-hmm. So I realized at that point, this is not for me. My mind is elsewhere. I'd actually rather be at home with my wife and, I, and mm-hmm. I'm not at home. I'm just here all the time. Um, so that's where the, 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 the doubt started creeping into my mind. Yeah. When you say you were there all the time, I want to just touch on that topic. With surgery, is it true? Are you? Is there a sort of expected culture whereby you're expected to be in after hours on your own accord expected to be in on weekends um, is that an expected thing of course of course and 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 i would also argue from a very dinosaur perspective and it's mm. the right attitude to have mm. you know if, if i'm a patient and somebody wants to put me to sleep and put a knife in me i want to mm. know this woman or man has done this procedure a thousand times i don't want the person who's done Mm. 50 of these procedures to tick their logbook i want the person Mm -hmm. who came in after night when they were hungry when they were tired when they were sleep deprived and they Mm. still managed to perform to that level yeah so it's it's hard to say it but it's it's a kind of necessary evil 
Um, yeah. in, terms of, in terms of the culture, it's twofold. One, you are pushing yourself because you want to continue to improve and you know deep down you're not good enough. You know, you, you yeah. did a, I don't know, for example, a very simple procedure, an insertion of a grommet. Why is it taking me 15 minutes? Why is it taking the consultant two minutes? Yeah. You know, how, how am I going to close that gap? This is a mm -hmm. child who's under general anesthetic and they're unnecessarily under general anesthetic longer with me because I'm not skillful enough. So you will drive mm -hmm. yourself to become better. Likewise, you come back to the culture of medicine. It's a competition. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've got five, they've got six. I've got seven, they've got eight. And you're going to constantly drive yourself to get those cases under your belt. So yeah. there's not enough time in the day. There's not enough opportunities in the week. So, yes, you're fully expected. And, you know, I'm yeah. not on call and I'm coming home at um, 10 o'clock at night. Now, that, mm. now, the difficulty with surgery is if you don't want to be part of that rat race, I don't want mm -hmm. to come in on the weekends. I have other things I need to do, you know, legitimate exactly. reasons. I have a sick mother, yeah. a sick father, you know, I have other, other responsibilities in my life. Nobody gives a crap. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the bit which is really harsh. So I'll give you a classic example. I was doing uh, max fax oral maxillofacial surgery and a case came in, which was a very simple dental abscess. And the surgeon who was on call happened to be at Royal London. And we're at yeah. Whips Cross, the, the sister hospital of Royal London, and we're not on call today. Mm. The registrar at Royal London said, I'm not comfortable doing this procedure. I haven't done enough of these. Very legitimate, very safe, very mature response to give. What should normally happen is the registrar should go to the consultant of the Royal London Hospital and say, I can't do this procedure. You're the on-call consultant. Can you assist me or show me or can you do it? Mm -hmm. Now, the consultant at the time very big cheese because everybody thinks they're a big cheese they're a big fish in a small <laughs> pond and you know what, what they don't realize is that the second they step out of the the front door of the hospital you're nobody you know and, mm. and i'd happily say that to any of them because some really do have a unfortunately a, a superiority complex yeah so this big cheese saw it as beneath them to do this dental abscess and what they told the registrar to do is they said call the sister hospital and tell the sister hospital they need to do the dental abscess because i'm not doing it now we're, oh, wow. we're doing our elective case me and the, the registrar, we're not on call. It's literally nothing to do with us. And we get a call and the registrar, because he can't upset the bosses, he might want yeah. to work in the future. You know, he said, okay, we'll try. And he asked the anesthetist, he said, look, we're doing our elective case. We're actually running ahead of time. Do you mind if we bring that patient over from Royal London to Whips Cross, 20 minute procedure, just do this dental abscess and we can all go home early. And the anesthetist mm -hmm. rightly so said, no, it's not my problem. You know, we're not doing this case. It's not my list. And, and you can put it on something called the C-pod list, which is like the emergency list, if you will. Yeah. The patient got listed on the emergency list, but a dental abscess is going to go behind an ectopic pregnancy, a bowel perforation is, is bottom of the list. Yeah, absolutely. So we finished at four o'clock, half four. It got to about wow. six o'clock and I told the registrar, mate, I don't want to be Max Fax. I don't want to be a surgeon and I'm gone. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to impress anybody here. Yeah. I, I saw the guy the next day. I said, what time did you actually take the case to theatre? He said 11 o'clock. Oh, oh my God. So this, this guy is not on call. It's not yeah. his problem. He shouldn't yeah. be doing it. He's got nothing to learn from it because it was such a simple case for him. He's very senior, mm. but he's got to kiss the ring and he's got to play along. And he had, yeah. he had clinic the next day. And that's where I started seeing, okay, this is not about you pushing yourself. This is even when you know it's nonsense, you have mm. to, you have to be involved in this. And that really cemented it for me. I said, I'm not, I'm not doing this for the rest of my life. Wow. No, 
the hyper competitive nature of it i understand it again i absolutely agree with you if if i was going to have an operation to be done i'd want that person who's obsessed with surgery who loves it who's there for it always but is it unsustainable are we going to reach that point where i mean we probably have reached that point where surgical trainees are suffering mentally work life balance um all of their relationships are at risk what do you imagine us reaching in terms of a situation in the future it's it's because the emphasis has all gone in the wrong areas you know there's such mm. an emphasis to to publish or perish and yeah. i don't understand this we're not all academics you know i understand it's important to know the principles of research so that you can digest research papers and be involved in those conversations but yeah. we don't all need mds we don't all need phd's we don't all need to be first name authors publishing two or three things a, 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 a year and i think that's the real challenge that nothing is ever taken away from training but it's always somebody's new genius idea of why don't we get them to do this work based assessment okay why don't mm. we get them now to do this form okay why don't we get yeah. them now to do this list and it's like wait that, you're adding that stuff are you taking anything away no 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 just yeah. do more and more and more so the real important bit of being a surgeon which is the practicing your surgical skills takes yeah. a back seat to everything else no definitely absolutely it's such a that. shame to hear um and i'm having heard your story and your experiences i can completely understand in terms of how your career progressed and moved forward and if anything probably is another blessing in disguise so having experienced this this surgical life and kind of having the foresight to understand what it would take where did this entrepreneurship kick in when did the idea of medical chain kind of problem solving dealing with the inefficiencies start to kind of yeah come to the forefront yeah so i suppose i suppose whilst i was training to be a surgeon i happened to locum as an accident and emergency doctor mm-hmm. and i locumed at st mary's hospital in paddington which is a large trauma center in in northwest london or west london mm-hmm. and what i was realizing so one thing is being kind of disillusioned by surgery and thinking this is not what i wanted but the other thing was then seeing the attractiveness of a different type of life mm-hmm. and i genuinely felt that i was learning more as a locum a and e doctor than i was as a dedicated you know selected surgical trainee and because i was locuming so much and earning good money i realized you know what i prefer this quality of life i clock in i clock out i get paid i'm actually learning and even though i was still a uh SHO a surgical mm-hmm. house officer in surgery i was promoted to being a registrar in A&E because they respected my skills so i was on a registrar's pay i was on a registrar's rota i did some shifts at royal london hospital as well which is another large trauma center so for me that that kind of push from one side and pull from the other side cemented in my head i'm not going to do surgery anymore mm. where the transition came about is i realized yeah, but i don't want to be an A&E doctor all my life either you know, and, and locuming for the rest of your life is is not what I would say is a good career move. Um, mm. It's good to fill the gaps in your in your progression, but I wouldn't suggest it as, as a full-time profession. Mm. So I realized I need to actually complete my training in something. So I, I started doing GP training. Mm-hmm. We're not doing GP training. I'd already lived in London for about three, nearly four years, and it was time to give somewhere else a chance. So my wife is from Bradford. I said, we're not going to live in Bradford, but we can live in Leeds if you like. <laughs> I understand that part. <laughs> yeah. So I said, that's as close as we'll be. You know, it's kind of like the, the Lion King, you know, the dark yeah. shadow in the corner. We don't, yeah. we don't go there. We don't yeah. go there. Or like all those memes are just flashing through my head. Yeah. About Bradford. 
I'm gonna have to edit this out. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean my in-laws are there, so I I I, I was there quite often. Um, okay. I, I have a special relationship with Bradford, but we we moved to Leeds, and I started my yeah. uh, GP training in Leeds, mm. and. I'd already been somebody from my F1 days. I corrected the rotor for the F1s. It was a bit skewed and a bit unfair. Mm. I'd always challenge things in MaxFax. So we go back to whips cross MaxFax. I, I started a revolt in MaxFax. So for example, there was, um, when, you, when you're an on-call in MaxFax, you hold the bleep for 24 hours. And I remember joining this rotation. I was the only doctor because the other guys rotating with me were all dentists. Mm. And I remember when I joined these guys, they're like, yeah, so you're holding it today. I said, holding what? And they're like, you're holding the bleep. I said, no, I'm going to theater. I don't know what you guys are on about. Yeah. And they explained to me, this is, this is the way it's always been. Somebody holds the on-call bleep from eight till five until the locum comes at five o'clock and the hospital mm. pay from the locum from 5 p.m. onwards. And I said, I'm in theater. I'm not touching that thing. And if anybody <laughs> wants to talk to me, they can talk to me. So we got escalated to the registrar, the consultant, the, the managers, the, the medical director. And I said, look, if this is because... You know, somebody's dad has died, somebody's, you know, really unwell. I'm more than happy to step in and take the bleep. You know, I, I, we have to support each other. But this yeah. nonsense has been going on for six months before I even got here. Yeah. And, and you guys are shortchanging us by getting us to hold two bleeps when mm -hmm. you should be. And I told them, I said, I'll hold the bleep. You can pay me an extra salary. And of mm -hmm. course, I said, no, we're not going to pay you to do the two jobs in one. So I said, mm -hmm. well, I'm not holding it. And I remember it literally got to the point where the consultant came up to me, uh, Mr. Ali, and he said, uh, look, Abdullah, are you going to hold the on-call bleep today or not? Uh, I said, nope. And then he called Royal London there in front of me. And he said, we have no SHO cover today on call. You guys are on call. Hmm. And then he, he told me, so, you know, you know, this is now Royal London's problem because you're not helping out your teammates. And I said, hmm. Mr. Ali, I'm very glad that it's their problem now because I hope they stand up for themselves as well and say, this is nonsense because they hmm, shouldn't yeah. be holding it either. Just employ more people or get the locum to start at eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah, exactly. You know, don't make us carry it for free for the whole day and then just pay that that chap who turns up at five o'clock. So mm. I've always been, you know, you can call it a troublemaker, but I've always been somebody, I don't take the nonsense. Yeah. Um, mm. And when I started my GP training, I managed to see a lot of inefficiencies in the system based on my surgical and any history and background. And I thought we can make a real difference here. So the first thing I created actually was something called discharge summary. And it's from yeah. Discharge Summary that led on to the other kind of business ideas. Yeah. T tell us a little bit about Discharge Summary. What is it? What did it, what did it do? And then how did it change and evolve? So, so I was second year GP trainee, um, Leeds General Infirmary uh, Cardiology Department. And, you know, really, I mean, I've had the absolute best time of my life in Leeds. I still live in Leeds. So this is now years on post GP <laughs> training. I, yeah. I love Leeds. I'm, I, you know, I'm never leaving here. Um, and, and I was in cardiology and I noticed that the quality of the discharge summaries, as you guys will know, can mm. vary massively. Yeah. And you had somebody who had a, you know, a, a, who came into cardiology with chest pain and it turned out to be anxiety related. This person's got a four page discharge summary by the F1 <laughs> and yeah. somebody who had a very complex heart attack with lots of stents and they needed a bypass and God knows what else. And they needed dialysis. The registrar has given them three lines on a discharge summary, which yeah, makes no yeah. sense. <laughs> so I wanted to create a website template to allow the junior doctors to just click through a few things. And then yeah. at the end of the clicks, they would have generated a, a standardized document to say, so for example, you'd say, uh, how old is the patient? 55, they're male or female, female. How did they attend the hospital via GP? Blah, 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 blah. Then you click next. And then it would say, 
this 55-year-old man attended via A&E with chest pain. His diagnosis was blank. Oh, and then, I so I, I had this idea. I'm not a technical person at all. So I went to mm. my uh, brother-in-law, Mohammed Tayeb, and I asked him if he could help me build this because he's a tech entrepreneur. He's built mm. a few things and exited a few companies. Oh, he wow. essentially said he's got no time for me and good luck to you and he just directed me to like one of these GoDaddy websites and said this is fiverr.com some guy from yeah. india will build it for you so I was like, yeah. hey, that's really helpful mm. then i went to my wife's brother-in-law called barra mustafa and i said look barra this is my idea mo's too much of a hot shot for me so um can you help me build this thing uh he said yeah sure let's do it on the weekends let's do it on the evenings i'll show you how to do it you put the material in there and we built this thing and it was used in lee's general infirmary Amazing. Um, it was used in the uh, University Lewisham Hospital, Princess wow. Royal, Queen Elizabeth. So it spread to a few hospitals and um, it's still for free and, and people still use it to today. Um, and I essentially had a large, well-known pharmaceutical company approach me and say, look, we like what you've done here. We see the quality of the summaries has improved. It's all standardized. Consultants appreciate it because they can actually refer back to it in clinic. GPs mm. appreciate it because they know which bit is exactly for them, their narrative. And the non-clinical coders in the hospital are actually making more money now because they don't have to go through these vast amount of notes. And you've put in bits which is valuable to them, such as does the patient smoke? What's yeah, their mobility exactly. like? The GP and the consultant don't care about that. But if you tick those boxes, the department makes more money because yeah. they tell the NHS, we had this guy who walks with a stick and smokes. We need 50 pounds extra for their sure. admission. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So me and Barra are not business people or we weren't back then so mm. we went back to mo and we said mo you remember that idea that we told you about that you know you poo-pooed and it's like yeah, how, yeah. how's that going <laughs> and so actually it's, it's going pretty well and um this pharmaceutical company wants to give us some money for it mm. uh and and he was like, okay good i'm glad how much how much have they offered you and i said well you know me and barrow we don't want to be greedy we're thinking maybe we'll go back to them and ask them for five thousand pounds yeah <laughs> oh, wow. so, so so, so Mo just laughed at us and just said, number one, you guys are a pair of idiots. Number two, <laughs> they spend £5,000 on Domino's pizzas on medical students in one day. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, so he said, is this actually what you want to do? And I explained to him, no, what I want to do. And I explained to him the idea of medical chain. And I said, mm -hmm. this is what I want to do. I want to empower patients to have access to the medical records. I want to remove healthcare barriers. I want to improve choice. But Amazing. I don't have the technical skill, nor do I have the team around me to build this because I'm just a medic. So mm. at that point, we formed Medical Chain and it was me and Mo are the co-founders and Barra is our chief technical officer. And from there, we opened up an office in London, an office in Switzerland. Uh, we, we employed, I think at one point we had 20 people uh, oh, wow. in the office um, and we were going for about four years and, and so. And, and thankfully, it's been a really ama amazing journey. And it's afforded me the ability to still practice as a GP whilst doing all this stuff in the background. No, amazing. That's amazing. Um, that's an incredible story. And it kind of started off with trying to make something a bit more efficient, trying to make people's lives easier. Um, a loss of medicine, we see the issues, we see the difficulties, and we just kind of continue with it, which is a bit frustrating to see. It's, you know, like you said before, my predecessors did it. It worked for them. Why should I change it? And they get on with it so it's a massive achievement for yourself what skill set did you develop or had to develop when you kind of went from this transition of being a gp trainee to now having let's say a startup of your own uh, what did you find difficult and what have you learned as a result um there's lots of things i found difficult and challenging um 
you know, I think I think you'll realize, you know, from my talk, I was blessed that I had family members who yeah. helped me on this journey. So these are people that I trusted, you know, explicitly I trust them and, and I've known them for half a decade, if, if not a decade before this moment in time. Mm. So I had people supporting me. I think the hardest transition for a medic to make is mm. we come from a culture and a background of being pessimistic and, you know, is it cancer doctor? I know it's not cancer, but I can never say it's not cancer. I go, well, we hope so. You know, we'll see. Everything is possible. And when you go into the business world, nobody wants to hear that. People want to hear, Absolutely. you know, yeah, this is going to make it. This is a billion dollar idea. You know, so that kind of transition between under under promising to over promising, if you will. Yeah. Is quite, quite a hard one. I think the, the good thing about having medics involved in this field is we still have authenticity. You know, I still have my medical medical uh, license. I don't want to be taken in front of the General Medical Council for anything. Mm. So we're always held to account to a higher standard than other businesses and other people because we recognize we're still clinical people and yeah, we still have absolutely. to do things the right ethical and, and proper way. But for me, that was the transition of, actually, I need to go out there and sell myself. I need to network with people. I need to start using some technical terminology. I didn't even know what it was till I Googled it yesterday. Yeah. Um, so that for me was the biggest challenge. And then like all things, the more you practice it, the more you try, the more you just leap of faith, uh, mm -hmm. things start coming together for you. Okay. And in terms of the vision for medical chain, is it you want to kind of make it accessible for any patient anywhere in the world to eventually have access to their own health records and there shouldn't be any barriers? Is that kind of the vision and kind of the end goal for medical chain? Yeah, I mean, that's the, you know, I think vision is one word, I think more realistically is fantasy, uh, because it's it's such a challenge, you know, just trying to do it within the UK, let alone the world. Um, yeah, but the, the idea really is that it's not about seeing your medical records, like, you know, you guys hopefully are young, fit and healthy, you know, who cares, like, what are you going to look at some vaccination you had when you were three years old? It, it, it's more about if you want to talk to a clinician, that clinician is going to be exposed to exactly the same information that your regular GP would or your regular hospital doctor. So the idea is that there's a single version of the truth which people can act on, add towards, and you can continue on your on your health journey, if you will, especially with health tourism and these other kind of industries growing. And what I would love the vision to be, you know, I don't know if, if you guys do this, but whenever I open my computer, the first thing I open is a, is a web browser. I use Chrome and I'm on Google. That's my starting point for everything I do. And I would love it in healthcare if that was the starting point for all health professionals in medicine, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, wherever you are in the world, it's web-based, open your Chrome or, or Safari, whatever you got, you go to medical chain, whatever our website is called by then. And that is your starting point. And the patient can share their QR code with you. They can share a link. The whole electronic health record system is there. You can view all the images, all the blood test results. You can add to it, save it, and it's back with the patient. And I would love that to be the legacy that we leave. And, you know, we're talking, we're talking decades. And again, when I listen to talks by, you know, Amazon and, and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and these people, you realize, look, okay, they're, they're super billionaires and super successful, but do you know these guys have been at it for decades? Like this did, this did not happen overnight. And I think people don't realize that. Like Elon Musk, I think is 55 years old. You look at him and the way he gets excited about cars, you think he's our age, like he's in his 30s or whatever, but this, he's not. He's been at this for decades.
Yeah, I saw like um, a video the other day, like in 2008, he had like what, 30, 40 million dollars and he had to make the decision in terms of SpaceX, Tesla, I can invest in one and the other one dies. He's like, these are two of my babies or I risk it and invest equally between the two and they both die. And obviously he split it between SpaceX and Tesla and he's doing that. And that was in 2008. Lo and behold, we're in 2021 and kind of reaping the benefits. And it's, and it's so, still going. Yeah, so I do definitely agree. I think there is this notion of all of these people have it easy. I'm sure a lot of people kind of see him like, wow, he just did it overnight. Um, he must be so lucky and they kind of forget the graft that does go into it. Um, let's talk a little bit about Medical Chain, um, about what it is, how it's come about. And how what, what exactly is blockchain? Because when I think about blockchain, I think cryptocurrency i think bitcoin uh, and what i understand is medical chain is based upon that um so tell us a little bit about that and how it how it works yeah so so blockchain is kind of like number one what is it i suppose and then number two what does it do so number one it's a decentralized distributed uh data ledger system so if we take those words one by one so it's it's distributed which means i'm not the only person that has this information there's a record of information a book if you will and we refer to that as a ledger and i've written down one two three four five six seven eight nine ten but it's distributed i don't just have this page you have this page and you have this page so between the three of us we have these pages okay i understand that's distributed it's now decentralized so the idea is that we're not all on the same team you know i'm imperial one of you's kings one of you's barts so it's now decentralized amongst us as well so the idea is that we all have the same information we don't act in the same party but we hold each other to account so if one of you comes along and says oh abdullah just added a line number 11 there you guys will look at each other and say, i don't have 11 i just have one to ten abdullah's information must be wrong now if you upscale that to hundreds thousands hundreds of thousands millions of machines or millions of node holders the people that hold this ledger hold this piece of paper the authenticity the trustless system is absolutely huge because nobody can come around and say uh yeah this transaction occurred on the blockchain and the reason it's called a blockchain is each time a transaction occurs there's a block and you add another block and another block and you've essentially formed a chain and you can't go back in time and undo a block because everything has been changed and cryptographically essentially uh password stored in such a way that you can't unravel it so that's why most people have heard of it with Bitcoin and why Bitcoin is so powerful is because if I said I've sent you some Bitcoin, it's near impossible. And so far to date, it hasn't been possible for somebody to rewrite that. So it's a very, very secure way of transferring data. So what we did is we looked at, you know, cryptocurrencies and thought, how could we use this kind of technology for health records? And, you know, hopefully you guys have seen this in your medical careers or you'll see it more often people will come into your clinic with all sorts of rubbish. They'll come up to you with scrunched up bits of paper and say, these are the drugs I'm on that somebody in Poland put me on. And, you know, you're kind of deciphering the words, you're kind of deciphering the doses. And you're like, what do you mean levothyroxine five micrograms? There's no such dose. Like, you know, this is just, I, I don't even know where to start with this. And the idea is even as clinicians, we do try to prescribe these drugs. We really try to facilitate the patient as much as we can. But in the digital age that we're in now, why are they bringing up on a scrunched up piece of paper? And if a patient actually showed it to me on their mobile phone, how can I trust it's the right information? If somebody goes, yeah, I had a car accident 10 years ago and I've been on pregabalin for life. I need more pregabalin. Uh, I never met you before. 
let me yeah let me fax your old gp and ask your old gp if that's what you're on so i think this idea of patients having access to their records is a very old idea because it essentially means clinicians having access to all the patients records but thankfully there's a technology called blockchain which might facilitate this in a better more secure manner what it does in simple terms it takes away the middleman it takes away the 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 person that you need to authenticate the information so in medicine you will get a letter from a health insurance company or a private hospital saying uh with the patient's consent we want access to the records okay why are you bothering me like i got a million admin things to do i don't need to sign things and tell the secretary could you do this and do that why could the patient not just give you direct access and you trust that whatever the patient is giving you access to is exactly what i would have access to too this is the same with finances i'm sending you a bitcoin i we don't need to go for a bank and why are they taking a cut and why is there transactions and why is the delay of 3 days until the money clears so every situation you can think of where you need a trusted party a bank a doctor a lawyer you can remove these assets in certain mm. ways by using a technology such as distributed ledger technologies No, that's amazing. I, I can really see the uses. Like, so I work in an A and E department, and sometimes I'd have to call loads of different hospitals, bother the med reg, bother the SHO, bother F ones, asking for information that I can't access. And it would save hours and ends, save patients time, save the department money. Um, so yeah, wh- where are we currently with sort of getting this into the NHS across the whole country? Um, rock and a hard place. So the problem is like any organization it depends if it's their flavor of the month and you have within the NHS you know this star spangled NHS X and everybody will bow down to NHS X and what NHS X thinks is important or the next big thing you know that their recent flavor of the month which they've gone quiet on lately is AI and you know I find it funny because AI has to be based on huge masses of data but they don't even want to fix the data issue and having access to the data which is one of the solutions we're talking about uh but they want to jump the gun and go straight to ai this and ai that and ai the toaster and turn it into terminator it's like okay whatever you guys want to do is absolutely fine so i think there's huge challenges within the nhs from a business perspective there's huge challenges for us because you know we are a startup and we have runway and we can't keep dumping hundreds of thousands millions of pounds into a system which nobody's going to pay for and i think you know for your kind of budding entrepreneurs or junior doctors or medical students you know i always tell them a good idea is not necessarily a good business idea and that's the first principle and you'll see lots of people you know i have lots of um i i mentor a lot of people and they'll come up to me and they'll say oh i've got this great idea we're going to give all the healthcare assistance ipads and blah blah, blah. and i go yeah that's I can I can totally see why the healthcare assistant would love to have an iPad. How's that going to make the hospital money? How are they going to save money? It's not a business idea. So no one's going to do it. And again, in my level of conversations now, I will have conversations with chief executives of trusts and they'll say, "Oh, can we do this and change the banner and do a logo and if you could do that and if you had right back access and if you did that." I said, "Okay, cool." So, you know, we're looking at about 20,000 pounds of developer time there. Um oh no 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 I'm just saying if you wanted to do it it's like well, where, where do you think it's going to happen like if if you think it's such an essential feature will you pay for it if you pay for it we'll build it but there's no point in just giving a long wish list and and this is essentially why unfortunately the NHS gets labeled as the graveyard of dreams from a kind of innovation or technology because people 
like the NHS Clinical Entrepreneur Program I'm, I'm involved with, amazing, amazing, you know, people that have got such great ideas. Their only intention, first and foremost, is to help the NHS and then make some money. And genuinely, some of them are like that. Like, they're not as business ruthless as I am. They are genuinely trying to help the NHS first and foremost. And they're having their time wasted. You know, they're plugging so much effort, so much time into this, into somebody who's just going to turn around like, oh, we didn't really want it. We just thought if you could give it to us, we'd try it and maybe we'd use it for a week. But they don't yeah. realize how much sacrifice went into that. No, exactly. definitely agree. Um, I do hope the culture does change and I do hope that these ideas are adopted. Otherwise, sometimes the efforts do seem a bit futile when we do need it. And having had the experience of medical chain and some of the obstacles you're facing and now having established you're like the Elon Musk of healthcare, why and what <laughs> happened or what's the story behind my clinic? So you're a GP, you got, you know, you founded or co-founded this medical chain and now you've gone and done it all over again. Tell us the story behind my clinic and tell us how you managed to do it all. That's what this, this whole conversation is. How do you manage to do it all? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, um, so the first thing, the, the reason I managed to do it all is because of my wife. Uh, and you know, she is super understanding. She understands. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one story before I move on to my clinic. Like, mm. I worked my ass off when I was a GP, not because the GP training was that challenging. Thankfully, I, I found it quite straightforward because of where I'd come from and what the challenges I'd been through so far. Yeah. But trying to do that and raise raise the capital, raise the funds, we raised $24 million on our journey. Um, we raised the majority of it in Bitcoin. So whatever it was worth That's then amazing. is worth more now. Oh, so, <laughs> and I'll, I'll leave it as that. Yeah. So, you know, we, we went on this hard journey and there were times where I remember I promised my wife, I said, look, I'm sorry, I've neglected you. I haven't given you time. We are, we are going to go see a sister in Dublin. Let's go see a sister in Dublin this weekend. Mobile phones are off. Let's just go. And, and we flew off to Dublin, me and her, to go meet her sister and, and her husband who, you know, we love so dearly and we have such a great time with them. And I'm not joking with you. Like we landed in Dublin. And I had a phone call from Mo and he just said, yeah, Abdullah, I need you in uh, Berlin tonight. Uh, and I was just like, mate, look, can't really happen. I'm with the wife. You know, we're going to just have to. No, no, no. There's these Chinese investors and they happen to be in Berlin. They want to see us tonight. We're going to meet them in this hotel. I need you in Berlin. Uh, yeah, but Mo, you know, my wife and, you know, it's, you know, marriage is kind of on the rocks right now like <laughs> mo wasn't helping you out mo, mo doesn't give a damn mo's married to my sister so like he really doesn't give a damn. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So, so at least he practices what he preaches yeah. um and i just said okay you know is there any other way around this and he said well if you don't want to see them in berlin that's cool we can just fly to shanghai the following week and we can go see them there i was like okay fine 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 so i had to talk to my wife I said look I'm really sorry but um I'm gonna have to go back to the airport because I need to go to Berlin right now and I've landed in literally my holiday gear like I've not landed in a suit or anything and I'm not joking <laughs> with you even my socks had holes in them because I come so casually yeah. um, but I had to take I had to take my uh, wife's brother-in-law's shirt socks shoes and then go to the airport fly to Berlin have this meeting with these people and literally like they invited us into their hotel suite and I had to take my shoes off. And I was just thinking, thank God I changed my socks. Yeah. Because you know, there literally <laughs> were holes in them. Uh, so these are the kind of sacrifices people don't see. 
And you can only do it because I had such a, a, a good partner with me, supporting me the whole way and still supporting mm -hmm. me now. Um, yeah. So it, it spurs me on to do different things like my clinic. So the original idea of Medical Chain, we spoke about medical records. Yeah. I wanted to give a platform for people to communicate with the clinician as well via video calling. And we were going to, going to build this into Medical Chain originally. Then the pandemic hit. And thankfully, we're blessed in the UK. We have three or four very viable options how to do video calling. But around the world, they don't. And we had friends in Nigeria telling us, like, we can't get access to a doctor at all. Yeah. Like, there's nothing. So I told the guys, look, you know, what, can we do something here? And Barra, you know, our chief technical officer, he said, mm. why don't we just deploy the telemedicine as a standalone product? We just mm. called it My Clinic. We'd already bought the, the URL name, uh, myclinic.com. Let's just deploy this. And he built it in three weeks. We yeah. sent it out. It was used in 78 countries around the world. Wow. You know, and it's a real credit to my team. And I t remind them of it daily because I use it in my general practice as well. And I tell them, you, you have no idea how many people you've actually helped, you know, that this is a given, this technology, yeah. and you, you've provided it. So it's something we're very proud of. No, that's, that's amazing to hear. And, I, you know, in the beginning, I mentioned you've been innovative and trying to solve the inefficiencies, but you're doing such great work. And it's exciting to see all the impact you're having. I'm super excited to see what the future holds for you. I know a lot of our guests, kind of pre-medics, medics, junior doctors, and general members of the public would be interested to see how your general week looks like. Um, if you don't mind sharing what an average week in your life looks like, it'd be quite interesting to get. Yeah, not at all. I mean, essentially, there's a kind of pre-COVID Abdullah and then a COVID Abdullah. So the pre-COVID Abdullah, we had an office in London. I'd commute down maybe every fortnight for three or four nights. Um, and then I would locum as a GP. So I, I, I'm a fully qualified GP, so I can locum. I, I'm not trainee anymore. And I would locum probably 10 hours a week, just because I enjoy it, to be honest with you. I mean, being a doctor is, is absolutely fantastic. And I come to the practice very refreshed because you know the patients have not ground me down. So I'm happy to help them and happy to listen to their problems. And in between all that, I'm playing five a side in the evenings. Uh, I'm going to the gym. Uh, I was socializing with friends. Um, I'd go on holidays. You know, the benefit of being a locum GP is I don't want to work. I don't have to work. And if I want to go to my office, I can go to my office. I'm the boss. I don't want to go to the office this week. Um, so that was the benefit of that kind of COVID times where well, we closed the offices down because why pay rent when they're office uh, when they're, when they're empty. Uh, so there's no need to cook commute down to London. Plus, you really shouldn't be commuting down to London in COVID unless it's really necessary work reasons. So I picked up more GP shifts. So instead of doing like 10 hours a week, I'm probably hitting between 20 to 30 hours a week of GP, um, maybe even sometimes more. And one, I'm helping out my colleagues because there is a real demand there and, a, and I'm trying to, to serve that demand. And number two, I'm obviously making more money as well for myself, more pocket money. Uh, that I'm managing to locum more as a, as a doctor. Um, and it's something which I'm very passionate about. So even though I'm a locum GP, it's not a not a side hustle for me. I'm the chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners in Yorkshire. You know, I'm part of the Leeds Local Medical Committee, which is our union of GPs. So I'm very much an advocate for my colleagues. And, you know, I hope I've demonstrated during this podcast, I will speak up when I think something doesn't make sense. And I try to put myself in those positions where I can be... I can be the person that can take the, the flack. Um, and it's happened to me time and time again. I've acted on behalf of, of a vulnerable group of GPs or GP trainees. And I've got a lot of, a lot of, uh, 
uh, sticks and stones. Yeah, a lot of people will throw things my way and say, you know, what you did was outrageous. This is not right. This is this. I say, well, lump it or leave it. This is who I am. Mm. Yeah. No, that's amazing. What's the what's the thing? You're the hero we need, but don't deserve. Is that is that what the saying is? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. No, you're, you're doing such amazing work, and and I'm really really glad that we got to sit down and do this. I think a lot of people probably derive a lot of inspiration in many different segments of your journey. Um, I'm conscious of time, and I know we've oil ran, so I do apologize. But before we wrap up, is there any advice you can give or would like to share with our listeners? Um, who may want to follow a, a similar path to yourself. Yeah, I think I think the advice I could give is probably twofold, and that's just be true to yourself and don't let anybody box you into something you're not. So, you know, when I was leaving surgery, I think the biggest disappointment was to my father, you know, and he was like, but my son is a surgeon. That's what he used to say to me. I go, dad, your, dad, your son is not a surgeon. Like, You need to let this one fly you know, and, and hopefully I'm going to go on to do other things. And I think there's a lot of people with a lot of pressure on their shoulders to be something they're not. And there's a lot of people that have different agendas for what they need you to be. I need you to be on this rotor. I need you to pick up the side. It's like, yeah, but that's not my problem. And I think when you start to unburden yourself with that's not what I want to do and that's not my problem, you start to see the horizon is very, very wide. I absolutely love being a medic and I have lots of student doctors or F1s, F2s come up to me and go, look, I'm thinking of quitting medicine. I always look at them and go, why? Why are you quitting medicine? Like medicine is an amazing degree. It opens so many doors for you. You know, you don't want to be a surgeon, be a GP. You don't want to be a GP, be a radiologist. You don't want to be a radiologist, be a pathologist. You don't want to be a pathologist, go work in the GMC. You don't want to work in the GMC, go be a medical legal doctor. You don't want to be a medical legal doctor, go work. You know, it's so broad, massive, massive, massive. And again, people, I think sometimes are premature in their decisions because they'll, reply with yeah but i've got this business idea and i go look man let's let's be honest here you're not mark zuckerberg nobody dropped a, a billion dollars at your feet and you're like i can't leave the nhs i'm sorry i can't you know if somebody dropped a billion dollars at your feet yeah quit hand, hand in your resignation tomorrow Mid shift, Mid shift. <laughs> in the middle Mid of all talking <laughs> guys guys patient safety all right we have to be careful <laughs> not mid-shift at least come on <laughs> it, it, it'd be mid-shift three points the, the bleep into the bin and you just walk out of that you know but oh that, that's that's not the reality so mm. so i would strongly encourage medical students finish your medical degrees i would strongly encourage f2s you know, at least get to the end of your foundation program, choose a specialty which you think is going to complement what you want to achieve in life. Mm. It doesn't have to be business related. It could be charity related. Mm. It could be community related. But uh, yeah, don't, uh, you know, don't turn Amazing. your back on medicine lightly is what I would um, say. And if something isn't right, it's what you've chosen to do in medicine. You know, and exactly. and I don't know why, you know, it's very sad. Maybe it's because the way we've been, you know, the doctrination of medicine, but we're too mm. scared to say, I'm not happy with this. You know, when you talk yeah. to your colleagues, like, I hate night shifts, I hate weekends. Well, why are you doing it? Mm. You know, yeah. who put a gun to your head? You know, you don't have to do it. There's lots of other things you can do. Mm. Absolutely. No, definitely. I'm, I'm so happy that you gave that, that piece of advice because I think we are getting into a little bit of a, where our head is in the sand, where everyone's narrow vision medicine does open up so many doors and as you said we can go from literally one field to the other at literally the flick of the finger um so yeah no absolutely thank you so much for that advice there is a particular university or a particular medical that i'm particularly aware of that 
a lot of the final year medical students are not entering foundation training and are now basically going into kind of consultancies, management, product management, all of those type of jobs. What are your thoughts on that? I, I don't know if it's a controversial question mm. or not, but I have always encouraged at least two foundation training so you get to experience medicine, you've worked so hard for it. Um, and I feel like you've been in a better position two years post having done medicine and working for these companies. What do you think about that? Um, those decisions yeah. for those individuals? I mean, obviously, everybody will have their own individual reasons and circumstances for why they've made that decision. I think as a very broad sweeping statement, I'd say it's a premature decision to make. You know, mm. medical school is not medical a medical career or medicine. Uh, there's a lot of downtrodden, you know, low morale staff out there that will not give you the best advice. Unfortunately, they will mm. tell you the right advice based on the bad decisions that they made for themselves. And mm. that is not necessarily the right decisions you would have made for yourself. Mm. And I would also say as well, you know, coming back to the Mark Zuckerberg analogy, what is this once in a lifetime opportunity that if you don't take now, you will kick yourself? You know, whatever these consultancy posts are, they will be around. Yeah. But if you leave medicine, it's very hard to get back into the swing of things as well. So I would encourage people, you know, you can even leave medicine halfway through. Don't get me wrong, like start F1 and then just give your three month notice and say, look, genuinely i can't give up this op opportunity i gave this this a go it's really not me and move mm. on and there's no shame in doing that um so i think yeah it's a, it's a bit premature but everybody will have their own reasons um for why yeah. they've made that decision so early on in their medical career you know there's so much more we can talk about i'm conscious of time um but i just want to thank you abdullah for all the beneficial advice you've given and kind of your inspirational and how journey. raw you've been <laughs> yeah, you've just said it as it is we're gonna probably reach out and you've just secured yourself two mentees even despite <laughs> if you don't even if you don't agree right <laughs> you're stuck with us if people do want to reach out if they do want to kind of get more advice or have some queries how can people reach out to you if you are open to kind of speak yes yeah, so, so i'm very so most people come to me via um linkedin is a good place uh, mm. If you're a student of any description, so it doesn't have to be medicine, but if you're a student of any description, I always have time for you because somebody always had time for me. And, and I really, you know, I'm very raw and I'm very brutal. And I'm very harsh, but it all comes from a place of love and, and care. And there are some people that I gel with or I click with. So, for example, you know, my, my friend from Medics Money reached out to me on LinkedIn. We've collaborated oh, on a few things. Amazing. I tried giving him some business advice. You know, likewise with you boys, if I can help mm. you with anything, I'm more than help you with. Sometimes I have conversations with people, I don't click with them or I don't gel with them. <laughs> so I will tell them, you know, that's me, but I can direct you. Maybe this other person can help you instead of me. So yeah. I, I, wel I welcome all the connections, but some I'm going to obviously feel more inspired to help than others because we have more going on together. No, amazing. that's fine. That's amazing. Um, a massive thank you to Abdullah and a massive thank you to all the listeners. It really has been a massive pleasure for us all. Um, and we hope to see you all next week.